The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I have to be honest with you, I have always struggled with prayer my entire Christian life. Uh, from the very beginning of my Christian life, I wasn't really sure how prayer worked. I'm still not entirely sure how it works. I remember early, uh, maybe a few months after I came to Christ, I was being discipled by a guy with Campus Crusade for Christ, and we were working on a car. I'll never forget this, and I was trying to get a, a spark plug change, it just wouldn't work, and we worked on it together for about an hour to the point where I couldn't even look at the car anymore. I was so frustrated by this, and he said, why don't we pray? I said, why, why, would, why should we pray? He said, what? I said, well, why should we pray? God's just going to do what he's going to do anyway. And he rebuked me without giving me an answer to that deep theological question. We never did get that spark plug in. I'll never forget driving my car with one of the spark, plug, uh, spark plugs out. Sounds worse than if it has no muffler. And I'll never forget the guy running out and telling me to turn the engine off. I'll, I'll never forget that. And he said, one of the spark plugs is missing. Well, we knew that. And uh, said, well, we couldn't get the spark plug in. And he looked at me like I was lower than, than a worm. You couldn't get a spark plug in. He said, give it to me. And he, he, he took his spark plug in his hand, reached back like that, and his hand came back empty. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm getting a wrench to tighten it. It's in. It was just, just like that. I felt like a total loser. <laughs> now, Tim, my discipler, later said, God answered our prayer. The spark plug got put in. I said, yeah, but I didn't want all that trouble, and I didn't want to be ashamed. And still, those words that I spoke years ago have plagued me and haunted me in reference to prayer. Why should I pray? God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. Have you ever struggled with prayer? Do you struggle now? Would any of you say that your prayer lives are exactly what they should be? Well, I don't know anyone that would say that. Even those that are flourishing the most in prayer still yearn for more. There was a time in Luke 11 when Jesus' disciples came upon him praying and they watched him praying and they watched him finish his time of prayer. And they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And I feel that, don't you? Say, Lord, teach me to pray. I want to pray better than I do. And it seems to me in Ephesians 1, and again later we'll see in Ephesians 3, the Lord has to some degree say, said to all of us, have you considered my servant Paul? He'll teach you to pray. We can learn from the Apostle Paul what to pray for and how to pray. And so as we come to Ephesians 1, and we're going to focus this morning on 15 through 17, we're going to learn better how to pray. And my desire is that as a result of this sermon and this study, all of us will pray better. That we will flourish actually in our prayer lives. That we will pray better individually. That we will pray better corporately because we need that. Now, Paul begins in verses 15 and 16 with thanksgiving for the Ephesians' genuine conversion. The Apostle Paul has already unfolded in verses 3 through 14, I would say the single most magnificent sentence in all of Scripture. It's one long sentence, 12 verses. And he's unfolded in a very quick way the theology of the Ephesians' salvation, how it began before the foundation of the world, how God chose them in Christ 
before the foundation of the world and how God the Father predestined them in love to be adopted as his sons and how God planned this entire salvation out before anything came to be and how then Jesus, God the Son, shed his blood We have redemption in verse 7 through his blood and how God the Holy Spirit applies that to us individually when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, having believed we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so we have the work of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit in the salvation of these Ephesian Christians. And Paul tells them how he's been praying for them. He says in verses 15 and 16, for this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So we have Paul beginning with thanksgiving, and also we see his intercession for them. And so there's parts of prayer that are adoration and thanksgiving in which we thank God for who he is and what he's done. We worship him, we praise him. And we then acknowledge our own neediness and our, our inadequacy for the challenges. And we, we confess those things to God and say, we need you. We have to have your help. And so we are confessing that God is all sufficient and that we are needy. And so Paul begins with thanksgiving and then he moves on to intercession, making requests for the Ephesians. Now what was it, he says, that moved Paul to pray for the Ephesians? Well, he says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Paul had heard greatly encouraging reports about how the gospel had transformed their lives. In other words, he had compelling evidence of their genuine conversion to Christ. So what are marks of genuine conversion? How can you know that you're born again? How can you know that you're elect? How can you know that you are are saved. Well, he talks first about faith in the Lord Jesus. It's not enough for someone to believe in God. A lot of people say they believe in God. Jews believe in God. Muslims will say they believe in God. Hindus believe in God. Paul is moved specifically by their reports of their faith in the Lord Jesus. They believe in the Lord Jesus, he says. Now, the gospel came to Ephesus, and at the center of the gospel is the truth about the Lord Jesus. This cuts to the center of what a sinner has to believe to be saved. Jesus is the center of the gospel, specifically his saving work on the cross. Look again at verse 7. In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So faith in the Lord Jesus means I have renounced any effort at self-salvation. I am not self-sufficient. I cannot atone for my own sins. I am a sinner. I have cast myself on the saving work of Jesus on the cross. I have trusted in him to save me. But who was this person who died on the cross? Who was this individual? So this, the simple two words, Lord Jesus, sums up a lot of doctrine about the Christian religion. Lord emphasizes the deity of Christ, and Jesus emphasizes the humanity. So this man, this human being, born of the Virgin Mary, in the ordinary way, as a baby, 
who was raised and who grew physically, grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, who just grew up before the eyes of, of witnesses, of neighbors who saw him grow up from a little boy, who had flesh and bones and blood, who needed food and air and water in order to survive, who in many ways was just the same as you and me. He had no physical appearance or beauty or majesty. There was nothing in his appearance that was unique. He didn't, wasn't glowing with the glory of God all the time. He did on the Mount of Transfiguration, but that wasn't his consistent appearance. He looked ordinary, very ordinary. He was a normal human being. He got tired and needed to sleep. And most of all, he could die. He was a human being in that he could die. So that's the humanity of Jesus. We also see the deity of Christ, the Lord the deity of Christ. We believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. That he's truly the Lord Jesus Christ. The Ephesians came to believe that their Savior was not only human, able to shed his blood and die, but also God as proven by his resurrection from the dead. He was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And this is essential to our salvation. It says in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you have to confess the deity of this man, Jesus. And this confession, this conviction that Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, was actually God in the flesh, can only come about by the direct working of the Holy Spirit of God on your heart. Only if the Holy Spirit of God works on you and in you will you ever be able, truthfully, to make the confession, Jesus is Lord. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we can never make that confession except by the direct action of the Spirit of God. Now, Paul believed and had heard that these Ephesians could make that confession. They believed in the Lord Jesus they had left their pagan ways, their belief in many gods and goddesses. They turned their backs on all of that. And they believed that the Lord Jesus was their personal Savior and their God. So this is the first evidence of their genuine conversion. Secondly, he talks about their love for all the saints. This is the other great transformation in the Holy Spirit. Not only vertically, believing in the triune God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Believing that Jesus is God vertically, but horizontally... It transforms how you treat others and especially how you treat other Christians, how you feel about other Christians. Your love for all the saints, he mentions. Now, the natural man, not born again, has no desire, no special desire for fellowship with other Christians. I know I didn't. Before I was converted, I didn't like Christians. I didn't want to be around them. I think the Apostle Paul would say I was in the exact same condition, brother. I didn't like Christians at all. As a matter of fact, I used to drag them off to prison both men and women. And so Paul hated other Christians. He had no desire for fellowship uh, with them. So non-Christians tend to see us Christians in a number of bad ways. Uh, see us as narrow-minded bigots, perhaps. You're going to hear that kind of expression more and more as the 21st century unfolds here in the U.S. Narrow-minded bigots. Killjoys, hypocrites, perhaps uneducated in some ways, worthy of mockery. And disdain. This is the way that non-Christians see Christians. But once someone has been genuinely born again, that all changes. 
It is impossible to love the Father and not love his children. And so one of the great evidences of the transforming work of the Spirit of God is your love for all the saints, for other Christians. How can we explain this? How can we explain that I would say any genuine Christian who's sitting listening to me today would much rather be in the extended presence of another spirit-filled Christian than even the most famous or influential or fascinating or athletically skillful non-Christian for a day. I would much rather spend the day or travel with a Christian, a spirit-filled Christian, than even the most famous or influential non-Christian. I think you all know exactly why. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What are we going to talk about? We're going to disagree about the most important things. It doesn't mean we can't have a communication or relationship, but we do try. When I was telling you, I have deep love and attraction for other Christians, even if I've never met them. And you know what I'm talking about. You could be with a not, a, another Christian from another country. You could be, not even share the same language, but through a translator, you have immediate fellowship with that person, man or woman, or boy or girl. And it's beautiful, the love for all the saints. The Holy Spirit had worked in these Ephesians a genuine conversion, a genuine work of conversion, a belief in the deity of Christ, the Lord Jesus, and a genuine love for all the saints. So let me just stop and apply this right now to you. Do you see these two things in your life? Can you rightly assess yourself and say, I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe in the deity of Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that I am a sinner saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. And I have called on the name of the Lord Jesus for my salvation. I believe that God raised him from the dead, proving that he is Lord. Can you make that assertion? And is it played out in your life by the way you treat other Christians? The genuine love you have for the brothers and sisters. First John says a lot about this. You can't say, I love God and hate your brother. And so if you're a genuine Christian, you're going to love other Christians. Do you see these evidences in yourself? And if not, I just plead with you now to trust in Christ for the salvation of your soul. It could be, as Daniel said earlier, this is the very reason why you came here today. That perhaps for the first time you understand the gospel and now you call on the name of the Lord for your own salvation. Well, Paul goes from this evidence that they're genuinely born again to thanksgiving to the God who brought it all about. And I think this is just so vital. It could be that some of us are depressed and sad and struggling in life because we don't give thanks enough. We're not thankful to God in any and every circumstance. We haven't learned the discipline of thanking God at all times. And so these two evidences of genuine conversion move Paul to thanksgiving. He thanked God because God the Father had sovereignly worked these things out through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. So Paul gave credit where credit is due. It's so important that we see the theology of thanksgiving. There's so many things I could say about that, but what I want to go to is you thank the one responsible. The one who gave the gift, you say thank you to that one. And so we see the sovereignty of God in salvation by what Paul thanks God for. He thinks God's responsible for their salvation, and so he thanks God for it. I see the same thing in uh, Romans 6.17. It's one of my favorite theology of thanksgiving verses. Romans 6.17 says this. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. I preached a sermon once with this simplified title from Romans 6.17. Thank God you obeyed. Now, Meditate on that the rest of the afternoon. 
how in the world can I give God credit for something I did? Paul did. Thank God you obeyed. Thank God you believed. Thank God you repented. It is God who worked these things in you. Thank God you're a Christian. And Paul does that. He, he gives thanks. Paul continually thanked God for his own conversion, but here he goes beyond that. He thanks God for other people's conversion. Thank God you obeyed. Not just thank God I obeyed. I'm grateful for that. Oh, eternally grateful. But I'm grateful for your salvation too. And as a matter of fact, the more I think about it, the more I think it's reasonable to be equally thankful for your salvation as for mine. The same God worked them both. And so I am growing in that discipline of thanking God. And I know when I get to heaven, I will be equally thankful for the salvation of all of my brothers and sisters in Christ as I am for my own. Because it will be a clear display of the sovereign grace of God. So we need to give God thanks. We need to give thanks for our own salvation. You need to be like that one leper, the Samaritan, remember, that came back, the other nine walking on their way. Ten lepers cleansed. One of them, remember, to go back and give thanks. Luke 17. And he fell at Jesus' feet, and he couldn't stop crying and thanking God for his cleansing. We have received a greater cleansing than that. We have received cleansing from sin. We have been delivered from hell. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. Thank Jesus every day. Thank God for your salvation. But then go beyond that. Thank God for other people's salvation. And do it in prayer. That's what Paul does. We also see the perseverance in prayer here. Paul says from the first he heard, he has never stopped thanking God for them. He didn't just say one thanksgiving prayer. Thank God for the Ephesian Christians. But he continued to, to thank God. Look at verses 15 and 16. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. I have not ceased giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So we need perseverance in prayer. And this may be the rub here. This may be the problem. The fact that God is not a vending machine and that he doesn't immediately dispense the things we ask him for even though they may very well be in his plan and may very well be in accordance with Scripture. And so in Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus taught them the parable of the persistent widow for the reason that they should always pray and never give up. Why are we tempted to give up? Because God's timetable is not our own. Because God will not be ruled by us. He's a king. We are the suppliants. We are the servants asking for grace and mercy. He's not the servant, the, 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 the slave that comes immediately and does whatever we ask. But he takes into consideration our requests and does what his wise plan has ordained to do. Also because prayer is meant to transform us as well as to transform circumstances. And so we are to be genuinely, gradually, consistently transformed by a habit of prayer. So I think often of the idea of a piece of cold black iron being put into a bed of coals and then the bellows by the blacksmith blowing air on it. And, and it just has to be in there a while to get it heated up and soft and yielded to the blacksmith so it can be shaped and molded. My heart starts in prayer cold and distant. And so I need to be there a while. 
And not just on any given one prayer time, but over a long period of time in my life, I need to ask again and again and again for these things. Prayer is a form of training of our souls. What physical trainer would ever say, I want you to do one push-up and one sit-up for me today. There, you're done. I know you'd love a trainer like that, but you would have as kind of a secret instinct that he or she wasn't doing you much good. You don't seem to be getting into shape much. And I think you would know why. Okay, but a physical trainer that wisely pushes you close to the breaking point, you know that that trainer's doing you some good. And so the Lord doesn't instantly answer our prayers. He wants us to grow and develop in maturity, to learn how dependent we are on Him, to care more about the things we're praying for. And so we need perseverance in prayer. And so Paul prays day after day. He refused to rest. He refused to cease. And he continued to give thanks for them. He was, God was as worthy as, of thanksgiving on Wednesday as he'd been on Tuesday or the previous week. It never changes. God's immutable. And so he always is worthy of thanksgiving. So Paul literally made remembrance. He continued to think about them. Remembering their names. He spoke their names to God in prayer. And so should we be in our prayer lives. We notice he also gives prayer to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of glory. Look at verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So Paul's prayer is directed to God the Father. Now here I want to just give you a Trinitarian theology of prayer based on scriptural evidence. The usual pattern for prayer is that prayer is made to God the Father by the mediating work of God the Son, Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. As far as I know, there is no biblical evidence whatsoever for prayer directly to the Holy Spirit. As far as I can find, there's only one prayer in the New Testament directly to Jesus. And that is when Stephen was being martyred and he looked up and he saw heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, I don't think it's, it's wrong to pray to Jesus or wrong to play, pray to the Holy Spirit. Considering the Holy Spirit, if you can blaspheme to the Spirit, why couldn't you speak or address the Spirit? I think you can. But I think the Bible gives us this pattern of prayer to the Father. One thing I'm concerned about is that people have a reluctance to come to the Father but that they don't feel toward Jesus. And that they are much more uh, have more of affinity toward Jesus than to the Father. That would be completely wrong and heartbreaking. Jesus came to bring us to the Father. He came to be the mediator to point us to the Father. He always wanted us to be able to see the Father in Him. He came to reveal the Father to us. And so we should pray, the regular pattern would be prayer to God the Father through the mediating work of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we see that in uh, Ephesians 2.18. Maybe you could look ahead just a few verses or maybe the next page. But it says in Ephesians 2.18, For through Him, that is through Jesus, through Jesus, that's the mediate mediatorial work, like he's a new and living way open for us. Through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by one spirit. That's a Trinitarian verse in prayer. And so we have access to the Father, prayer goes to the Father. And we get there by the mediatorial work of Jesus on the cross. So I think true prayer should begin with remembering who you're speaking to. I think we should stop. We should pause. We should be extremely reverential as we go in to pray. I love what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. He said, Do not be quick with your mouth, 
And do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Now, that's all about reverence, isn't it? Don't just run glibly into God's presence. Pause, stop, be mindful. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That kind of thing, a sense of the greatness and majesty of God. Let's think about it. He is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Think about that before you go in. Now, what do we mean by, what does Paul mean by the God of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, this is an identifier of God. Which God are we praying to? Remember how Paul was in Athens and he saw some shrine that was marked with these words, to an unknown God. Well, they were polytheists, so they're trying to cover all the bases. I wonder if that unknown God would have been pleased with that or offended. But we're not polytheists. We don't believe in an unknown God. We believe in one God and that he has revealed himself to us by means of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by means of the scripture. The Holy Spirit's work in in the scripture and in creation. So God identifies himself. In the Old Testament, you see this again and again. I am the God of Abraham. Or I am the God who appeared to you at Bethel. Or he says to Moses at the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He identifies himself that way. I am the God who appeared to your fathers. But Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. And so this is a better way to identify the God that we're praying to. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, our Lord Jesus, approached God the Father as a man. He believed in the Father. He trusted the Father. He obeyed the Father. He loved his Father. He prayed to his Heavenly Father. He sought to please his Father at every moment. And after his resurrection, he spoke to the redeemed. He spoke to the church in this way. In John 20, 17, he said, Go to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. The exact same relationship I have with the father I have now made for you. And so he is our father as he is also Jesus' father. Now he is the only begotten son of God. We adopted children, but he is our father. He is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus came into the world to reveal the father to us. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So when we see him, we've seen the Father, says in John 14. Now here, Paul calls him the Father of glory. Think about that. What does that mean, the Father of glory? NIV has the glorious Father, but I like the Father of glory as though he is not only glorious himself, but he is the Father of all glory. All emanations of illumination and radiation there is in the universe come from God as the source. He's the source of all the rivers of glory there are in the universe. Everything comes from God. Now, what is the glory of God the Father? We think of the radiant display of God's perfections, the shining radiance of who He is. He is the Father of glory. It says in 1 Timothy 6.16, God alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. So I was meditating on that, unapproachable light. I was thinking about, what, what is that like? You know, it says in Isaiah 6, the seraphim were covering their faces. Unapproachable light, the glory of God. 
So I pictured the sun 93 million miles away, but I thought, wouldn't it be something if God could kind of make a special deal for us for just a day, and we could be a thousand miles away from the sun? Uh, He'd have to do a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thing surrounding us with a bubble of protection from the heat and radiation of the sun, but we're just thinking about light. The sun is 103 times larger across the diameter than the earth. So you could fit 103 earths stacked up across the diameter. So let's say we're at like 51, right in the middle. And we're about 500,000 miles away from the sun. You'd look up in the sky and all you would see would be fire. Raging, overwhelming light and fire. No heat because we had that special Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bubble. But we would just... There, and it's radiant light. That's what I think of when I think of unapproachable light. That is the God that we're praying to, the Father of glory. There will come a day in the new heaven and the new earth where the sun will be gone, the moon and the stars will be gone, and the whole world will shine, will be radiating with the glory of God through Jesus. That's the Father of glory. He is the source of all glory. And so as we begin to pray, we come with a sense of overwhelming awe and reverence. A sense of the majesty, the infinite majesty of God and how great he is. Now, what is the goal of this prayer? Well, it's knowing God. Look again at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of of him. Now this is the first of a series of intercessions. We're not going to deal with the, the rest of them today. There's just too many of them and they're wonderful. But we're just going to zero in on the first intercession. We come to God because he is capable of giving us infinitely more than all we could ask or imagine. We glorify God by asking for great things because he's a great God and God wants us to make our requests known to him. And the first request should be, oh God I want to know you better. And I want this brother and this sister to know you better. That's what I want. I want the knowledge of God. Now Paul's going to pray many more things than this. But he starts with this. That the Ephesian Christians would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. That they would know him. They're already Christians. Already born again. And he's praying, oh, that they would know you better. That they would know you more fully and more deeply and more richly. A.W. Tozer in his classic Knowledge of the Holy said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? It's the most important thing about you. So said A.W. Tozer. And J.I. Packer said this in his classic Knowing God. He said this, What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination, something which lays hold of our allegiance And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? That is the organizing directive of your life from here to eternity. Beyond the time when you're raised from the dead in a resurrection body. On into the new heaven and new earth, you're going to still be learning God. Forever. The knowledge of God. It's an infinite study, and we're going to be studying it forever. Now, this is Jesus' deep cry in John 17. This is his definition of eternal life in John 17, 3. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is, to know God. This is the great tragedy of the lostness of the world. 
John 17, 25. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. This is the work that Jesus does in every Christian at conversion. John 17, 6. I have revealed you to those whom you have given me out of the world. I revealed you to them. And this is the ongoing work he wants to continue doing. John 17, 26. I have made you known to them and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. So what is this knowledge of God? What, is, what does it mean that they may know God? Well, it is factual. It is knowledge about God, facts about God, truths about God that come from Scripture. Who He is, what He's done, His great acts in the past, these come from the pages of Scripture. Facts about God. And we should be zealous to gain as many facts as we can from the Bible about who God is, about His attributes, His actions about his plans and purposes in the world, what it teaches us about him. Facts about God. But God wants far more than just that. Now we know that no true relationship can be without factual knowledge. You can imagine a couple just beginning their relationship. They're sitting down, they're having maybe a cup of coffee, and they have one thing on their mind. Tell me about yourself. I want to know who you are. Maybe it started with eHarmony.com. I don't know. I mean, it begins with some, it's amazing how people get together these days. I was talking to a Christian about that. He said, okay, you okay with that? I said, well, look what happened with Isaac and Rebecca and that whole camel thing. And he went and got a servant, came back, and that was that. They got married. So I'm not sure what they conversed on on their wedding night. It's like, tell me your name at least. You know, let's get to know each other. <laughs> but there's some information that we have to have here. So I'm thinking eHarmony is, a bet, is like more filtering going on than happened with Rebecca and, and Isaac. But the servant went out and he was serving Abraham and brought the wife back for Isaac and it worked out great. Be careful what you do with what I just said. I'm not going to that nth degree. Pastor said it was fine. All I'm saying is relationships begin with a passing, a giving and receiving a factual knowledge. That's what I'm saying. There's no relationship without it. I actually knew a couple once that had no common language between the two when they got married. Got married in the 1920s. A Swedish woman and an Italian man. And they both spoke broken English. <laughs> so that was interesting. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> the passing of factual information is not enough. There needs to be a covenant love. A deep love relationship. Think about James 2.19. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Demons have more factual knowledge about God than you do. The factual knowledge is, is, is essential, but it's not enough. There has to be a heart of love, a covenant love relationship of affection. Matthew 7, Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What is Jesus saying there? Not, I don't have any facts about you. Oh, he has all the facts about them. 100% of the facts. But they had no love relationship. No love relationship. So are you conscious of the presence of God in your life by the Holy Spirit? Do you have a sense of his presence with you? A sense of intimacy with God? A sense that he loves you? That he calls you his son or daughter. He calls you by name. Do you have a sense of intimacy and love affection with God? That's what knowledge of God means. A sense of close covenant relationship. 
Like David said in Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. A sense of that kind of intimacy with Moses and God on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, where he says, now show me your glory. And he's saying, well, no one can see my face and live, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand and you'll see my back as I go by. And there's that intimacy between God and Moses. Do you have a sense of love relationship with God? A, a sense of the presence of God? I think it's a, like a matter of savoring God, of tasting, of seeing and savoring God. Like it says in Psalm 34, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. So imagine, picture like a, a table with a heavy white linen tablecloth and like a cut crystal, crystal little uh, dish and a scoop of raspberry sorbet and a heavy uh, spoon next to it plated with silver. And imagine picking up that heavy spoon and scooping out raspberry sorbet and putting it in your mouth and it's melting on your tongue and you can taste the raspberry and then swallow. Well, that description is not the same as eating the raspberry sorbet. There's nothing I can do verbally that will be equal to the experience of actually having it on your tongue. Have you experienced the love of God? Jonathan Edwards in his classic sermon, Divine and Supernatural Light, put it this way. There's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of that sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he's had the idea of the taste of honey in his mind. Taste and see that the Lord is good. All right, so that's the end of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. What's the means to the end? He says it's the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Well, here I believe, different than I think almost every English translation, that the S in spirit should be capitalized. I don't know if it is in the ESV. I know it's not in the NIV. So what's the difference between lowercase spirit and uppercase spirit? Well, uppercase spirit would refer to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Lowercase spirit would be a disposition in the human heart, a spirit uh, inside yourself, that kind of thing. A spirit of wisdom, etc. I think it makes perfect sense in that we were just a moment ago talking about the sealing of the spirit. That this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God to give you wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. It is the Holy Spirit's work to unveil God and to make God appear glorious to you. It is the Holy Spirit's work to do this in our hearts. That is the spirit of revelation. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 says, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the Spirit searches these things and brings them to us. Now, he doesn't do this by extra-biblical revelations. That's where cults start. Muhammad had, an, had a revelation from an angel and wrote the Quran. Joseph Smith had a revelation from an angel and wrote the Book of Mormon. 
Mary Baker Eddy had a revelation and started Christian science. Those are cults or false religions. I'm not talking about a spirit of revelation that comes outside the Bible. I think it comes from what the Lord has given us through the ministry of the apostles and prophets. The church built on the foundation of the scripture, the apostles and prophets. And the Holy Spirit takes the scripture and makes the truths about God clear to you. He illuminates your mind and your heart. We'll talk more about that, God willing, in the future. But the Holy Spirit illuminates and makes these things clear. And without that illumination... You'll never know God. Martin Lloyd-Jones told the story about a relationship between William Wilberforce, who was an evangelical Christian, politician, tremendous leader in England in the early part of the 1800s, who was instrumental in the fight against the slave trade and eventually against slavery itself. And he had a good friend named William Pitt, who was prime minister, not a believer, and Wilberforce was deeply concerned with his friend, deeply concerned with his soul. And he would try to give him books. He'd try to share with him different things. William Pitt was a brilliant man. And the two of them had interesting, spicy conversations, but still nothing. Well, one day, William Wilberforce heard that a famous preacher, a powerful preacher named Richard Cecil, was preaching nearby where they lived. And so he persuaded William Pitt to go with him to hear. And Wilberforce said, I had never heard a clearer exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never a clearer explanation of the deity of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and the need for repentance and faith. So much so that Wilberforce was swimming in tears. But Pitt, sitting next to him, was not moved at all. And afterward, Wilberforce said, well, what did you think? He said, I must tell you, Wilberforce, I concentrated carefully on everything that man said. I tried to follow his train of thought and his argumentation. And honestly, I have no idea what he's talking about. Now, William Pitt was more intelligent than Wilberforce. But if the Spirit of God does not give you wisdom and revelation in the knowing of him, you will never know him. But if the Spirit of God does give you wisdom and revelation, you will know him more and more. That is the work of the Spirit. Now, what can we take from this? What I would say is, I've already made an appeal to non-Christians to believe. I'm going to now make an appeal to you Christians to pray like this. This is a simple application. Look at your prayer life and say, do I pray like Paul prays? Do I pray without ceasing, with thanksgiving, to God the Father, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit? And do I pray for other Christians like this and for myself? And if not, I'm going to urge you and plead with you. Go to God and say, make me a prayer warrior. Change my prayer life. Give me this kind of intimacy that you gave the Apostle Paul. Well, we're going to transition now to a time of celebration of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to close the sermon in prayer now. And then I'm going to ask the deacons to come up and we'll partake. Father, we thank you for what we've learned in Ephesians concerning Paul's prayer life and concerning what he prayed for for the Ephesian Christians. And we give you thanks for it. And we ask that you would transform our prayer lives, O Lord. Make us powerful prayer warriors. Enable us, O Lord, to pray as Paul prayed for the Ephesian Christians. That we would see an unleashing of power here in First Baptist Church as we have never seen before even in our lifetime. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life. 
the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.